Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jessica Lee, a third-year MD-PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania and your student producer for this episode, where we will be discussing pediatric sickle cell disease. We are thrilled to be joined today by two experts in sickle cell disease, Dr. Angela Ellison, an associate professor of pediatrics and an attending physician in the emergency department at CHOP. She is currently serving as the associate chair of diversity and equity in the department of pediatrics. Also joining us today is Dr. Kim Smith-Whitley, the director of the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center, the clinical director of the Division of Hematology, and a professor of pediatrics. And as always, the host of our podcast, Dr. Bob Belfer. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Jess, for that introduction, and welcome to our rapidly growing listening audience. You are in for a treat today with these two remarkable physicians as our guests. And you got to know a little bit about them from Jess's introduction, but let's have two icebreaker questions for our guests. Kim, let's start with you. What professional achievement are you most proud of and why? I am really most proud of the team that I have developed for the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center. I am just excited that I get a chance to work with social workers, community health workers, nurses, nurse practitioners every day that are all interested in improving the lives of those living with sickle cell. Great. Thank you, Kim. Angie, in a career filled with many professional achievements, which one are you most proud of? You know, it's really funny because I think the thing I'm most proud of is really just becoming a physician, like the early start of it. You know, growing up, you know, there weren't physicians in my family. We, I was one of the first generations to go to college and realizing that I achieved that goal was just monumentous for me. So I think that was the, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Great. Thank you, Angie. And a last question before we delve into sickle cell disease, Kim, besides sickle cell disease, what is your favorite disease <laughs> or diagnosis? Well, you know, I'd have to say sickle cell number one, two, three, all the way down through affinity. But if you had to challenge me on another, I would say that the other process that I'm very concerned with, the underlying pathophysiology and the complexity of the illnesses are in autoimmune cytopenias. So that's my other passion. Very good. Angie, how about you? You have a little bit more wide array of diseases that we see in the ED. What's your favorite one and why? Yeah, it was funny. I was going to say sickle cell disease, but you, you just took that one away from me. Um, you know, I probably have to say asthma, right? I think, you know, it's a disease that's very common and we see kids get better quickly um, after treatment with it. So it's very simple in, um, in most cases and there's a treatment for it. So I would say that. Great. Thank you, Angie. And now let's delve into sickle cell disease. As our listening audience knows, I like to start off each topic with a little bit of the history of the disease. And the history of sickle cell disease is remarkable. I'll give a little intro, and Kim, Angie, if you have anything to add to that history, our listening audience would love to hear that. We know sickle cell disease has been present in Africa for at least 5,000 years. It's known by many names in many different tribal languages. One specifically in the 1870s, Ogbanges, O-G-B-A-N-J-E-S, which loosely translated means children who come and go. And that was due to the high infant mortality rate 
in children who had this as yet undiagnosed disease. Coming more to the United States in 1904, Walter Clement Noel, a 20-year-old dental student from Granada, was admitted to Chicago Presbyterian Hospital with anemia and respiratory distress. The intern on duty, Dr. Ernest Irons, while examining the patient's blood smear, described peculiar, elongated, and sickle-shaped cells. His supervising physician, Dr. James Herrick, wrote about these findings a few years later in the Archives of Internal Medicine, describing the first known case of sickle cell disease in the United States. That is some history, considering it goes back 5,000 years, and we only had to go back a little bit more than 100 years to get the history in the United States. Kim, any additions to that history that you want to share with us before we delve into some of the treatment and management decisions in sickle cell? So I will just say that Walter Clement Knowles' story is compelling. He was an oral maxillofacial surgeon. He went back home to Grenada. Um, and actually, over the course of his documentation through letters, we can tell that he had a leg ulcer. Actually, when he was on the journey to the States, going to New York before he got on a train uh, to go to Chicago, where he um, then encountered the group um, in Chicago Presbyterian but also that he had acute chest syndrome and other uh, types of illness. And it's very clear to me that the most sobering aspect about his history is that the way that we treated pain then is still the way that we treat acute pain now, and that's through supportive care. So I think that that's one of the most compelling things about Walter Clement Knowles' story is that we really have not made as many advances as I would like since. Um, he first came to the U.S. in 1904. Angie? Yeah, I don't have anything to add on that. I agree with Kim. When you look back on history and you usually you measure it by progress and we just haven't progressed as far as I think we should, although we are making progress. And we're going to talk about some of that progress uh, it, in this podcast. So it is a pediatric emergency medicine podcast and emergency medicine doctors, emergency medicine nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, are all first-line providers in the care of sickle cell disease patients who present usually to the ED with acute complications. I think it's important to understand the pathophysiology, the clinical features, to ensure high-quality care when managing these children. But I would want from you, the two experts, to share with our listeners are some of the dramatic milestones in sickle cell disease, specifically the ones that impact emergency department care. Now, Kim, I'm going to tell our listening audience, you and I go back to residency days. We do. In Children's, Na Children's National Medical Center under the guidance of our director, Dr. Arnold Einhorn. And I remember roommate in the Room ED, Room eight. Kim. Yeah, that's exactly pa right, Dr. Belfer. That's where, Bob, we took care of so many children with seizures and asthma and sickle cell disease in that room. Um, and one of the things that's most compelling to me is I remember this journey with sickle cell is in room eight, as I was an intern, a family brought a child in who was having high spiking fevers and really looked quite ill. Um, and I was just getting everything stabilized in room eight with IVs placed and antibiotics on board, thinking that I was treating a child um, with, without a chronic illness who was coming in with bacteremia sepsis. 
And I got a call from the lab and I was asked to come upstairs. And as you know, you could take some of the back stairs in that hospital to get to the lab. And when the slide was placed um, in front of me on the microscope, I looked in and the white cells were chock full of bacteria because they were just so overwhelmed by the extreme amount of bacteremia. And the cells beside them, the red cells, were sickled. And so I not only had to go back downstairs to roommate and tell that family that their child had a very significant infection, but I also had to tell them that their child had sickle cell disease because we did not have newborn screening then. Right. And Kim, I remember a lot of tests we ordered in addition to the CBC and blood culture on these children who either came with fever, swollen fingers, painful extremities, was a sickle dex test. In other words, just like you said, for the lab to look to make the initial diagnosis of sickle cell disease in the ED. Now, we know in 1986, the NIH made recommendations for newborn screening. It wasn't until 20 years later, 2006, that universal screening in the United States is now available. Angie, talk about how that has changed the management of sickle cell disease, universal newborn screening. Well, I think that the major way it's changed is what Kim is referring to is that you know very early which patients are born with sickle cell disease. And I think the most life-saving thing that we are able to do is to start them on prophylactic penicillin treatment. And I, I think if there's, you know, you can have newborn screening, but if there's no way to treat it, you know, then why have it? And I think that study looking at penicillin prophylaxis actually really justify why there should be newborn screening for patients. Great, Angie. Thank you. Now, we talked about newborn screening in the United States, but as you may not know, we have an international podcast listening audience, and we know that over 300,000 babies a year are born with sickle cell disease the majority in the three countries of Nigeria, India, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where universal screening, at least what I read, and maybe you can elaborate, is pretty much non-existent. Not to say if we're able to screen them, we could do anything about it. But just, Kim, Angie, talk to us about sort of the global sickle cell. Universal screening, are we, are we getting there? Are there ways that we can increase this? Well, one of the things that Angie and I have had the pleasure of doing together is going to conferences in Ghana on sickle cell disease, where one of our beloved mentors, Kwaku Ohini Frempong, is doing um, newborn screening in Ghana. And what is striking to me is that there are many, many programs existing now in sub-Saharan Africa, but still not capturing all of the children that need to be captured. So, Bob, I know that you're probably going to share the statistic that of the children born in sub-Saharan Africa, only 50 to 90 percent survive to five years of age with sickle cell disease. So a lot of what's needed is just what Angie described earlier, early identification, preferably in the newborn period, and starting antibiotics for preventing infections early in life. Great. Let's sort of switch gears, Angie, to a topic that you were discussing. Once we identify the patient with sickle cell disease, there were two major studies attempting to decrease the risk of death by infection. Okay, I remember back in the days, Kim, when sickle cell patients with fever presented to the ED, Angie, I'm sure you did at your institution, they were triage category one because of the high risk of overwhelming bacteremia. 
1986, in the New England Journal of Medicine, study titled Prophylaxis with Oral Penicillin in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia showed that almost an 80% reduction in pneumococcal infection with sickle cell disease. And then about 20 or so years later, pneumococcal vaccine. Again, both the seven-valent pneumococcal vaccine showed a dramatic reduction in pneumococcal disease. So talk about, Angie, I'll start with you, the ER doctor, the fact that prophylaxis penicillin, pneumococcal vaccine, how has that changed the number of patients showing up to the ED with fever and sepsis? Talk, talk to us about that, Angie. Yeah, so it's great that you asked that question. I think uh, Kim and I actually did a study together almost a decade ago uh, where we uh, actually looked at the incidence of uh, bacteremia in patients with sickle cell disease in our entire population um, at CHOP. And at that time, I think we found about 10 cases, Kim, of kids who had pneumococcal bacteremia. And much of that was due to kind of stereotype displacement from earlier uh, pneumococcal um, disease, as well as for patients who weren't compliant with penicillin prophylaxis. And so that was when the, the, the first, or the, I guess we would say the second pneumococcal vaccine was developed. And then a third pneumococcal vaccine, PCV13, came on the scene. And that really helped to really revolutionize how we take care of patients. So up until about 10 years ago, we were um, admitting all of our patients with fever to the hospital for treatment with antibiotics. And given the advancement with pneumococcal vaccine on top of uh, penicillin prophylaxis, we're now able to send our patients home from the emergency department. I think the last time we looked at our data was probably about five years ago. And I believe at that time, we probably had just two patients who had bacteremia. And in those patients, it was the same thing. I think both of them were not compliant with their penicillin prophylaxis. So it's really changed the way we, we manage these patients. Maybe one day we'll be able to send them home with oral antibiotics only without getting IV therapy or maybe no treatment at all. Uh, no one's bold enough to do that yet, but... That's, <laughs> what, I was gonna in- <laughs> That's what I was going to interject, Angie, just uh, for our listening audience. So these patients are still showing up in the ER, our sickle cell patients with fever, Mm -hmm. but talk to us about sort of the the less of a workup and the fact that what antibiotics we do give them, but we do do it on an outpatient basis. So just elaborate a little bit more. Yeah. So when the the patients come in, they usually get their CBC, look at their, uh, because there are many reasons they can have fever and and Kim can... (laughs) support that as well. You know, we want to make sure they don't have uh, what's parvovirus, which can cause them to drop all their blood counts, which could be dangerous. We also need to make sure they don't have splenic sequestration, which is another reason to check their hemoglobin and and their hematocrit. And, you know, and of course, bacteremia is, is one of our major concerns. Once we get their CBC back and they're looking well, um, our younger kids, we may decide to do a chest x-ray on them, you know, depending on how they look clinically. But we're able to give a one dose of antibiotics, IV, ceftriaxone, and then they're, they're able to go home. In our older population, the kids who are 17 and older, we actually started giving them oral antibiotics with uh, Levaquin. They take that orally and they're able to be discharged home, so even without IV antibiotics. Great. Angie, Kim, anything to add on both penicillin prophylaxis and pneumococcal vaccine, how that has transformed the way infections are dramatically reduced in the sickle cell population? 
No, I just want to add that I think one of the innovative aspects of their care here um, is the way that emergency medicine works with hematology. And one of the most concerning aspects uh, is follow-up of care. And actually, what was so important about the program that Angie developed is that that also sends us messages through our electronic health record so that we can follow up with the families the next day to make sure that they're continuing to stay healthy. If they have a positive blood culture, which thank goodness we've never sent anybody home that had a positive blood culture. But as you know, if that were to happen, it would be very important for us to be able to reach them and follow up. So I think that connectivity between emergency medicine and hematology is just one of the other aspects that is so unique and so important in the outpatient management of febrile illness and sickle cell. And, you know, you brought up the issue of blood cultures. You know, our blood culture systems have developed. And because we're able to know right away versus, you know, we remember before it would be two days later, maybe you would find out if a blood culture was positive. Now, you know, the systems have developed such that you know right away. So, you know, that was also a big consideration in our ability to send patients home. Let's switch uh, to a different acute complication that we see in up to 10 to 11% of patients with sickle cell disease up to the age of 20, and that is a stroke. And I wanna go back to 1998, New England Journal of Medicine article titled, Prevention of a First Stroke by Transfusions in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia and Abnormal Results on Transcranial Doppler Ultrasound. So again, I wasn't really that familiar with it. I know it stands Transcranial Doppler Ultrasound, TCD. What is that? What denotes abnormalities? What percent of the children will have abnormalities, and then I want you both to sort of opine or talk about what we do for those patients that are at risk for stroke and or TIA. Kim, you want to take it first? Yeah, I'll take the first part of it and then turn it over to Angie. One of the things that was um, revolutionary about transcranial Doppler ultrasounds is that they were initially used to look for anemia in utero for fetuses to make sure that there was adequate health, particularly around individuals that were having problems with their pregnancy. And there was a neurologist that thought, wow, if this is a way of assessing kind of intracerebral blood flow, why don't we also look at this in children with sickle cell disease? So transcranial Doppler ultrasound actually allows you in a um, painless way just to put um, nice gel on the temple of the child and then put the ultrasound wand against the temple and you can insinate the anterior and middle cerebral artery circulation in the circle of Willis. And that's, those are the areas where strokes are most common in children with sickle cell disease. And so if that value is greater than 200 centimeters per second, it, it implies that there's narrowing of that vessel. It means that that child has an upwards of a 30% um, chance of having a stroke in the next three years, and you can reduce that stroke risk with routine transfusions to maintain the S percentage of hemoglobin below 30%. So it's really revolutionized how we approach stroke from being reactive and only starting transfusions after the stroke has occurred to now preventing transfusions by starting them in high-risk patients. Just to follow up, Kim, how often do patients with sickle cell disease require these ultrasound examinations? 
So that's an important clarification. And the ages where we are able to um, see this increased incidence are between two and 16 years of age. Usually after 16 years of age, because of the way that the bone marrow expands in order to accommodate increased red cell production, it's hard to insinate those vessels the same way. And so we say that we get closed acoustic windows, but usually it's annually between the ages of two and 16 years that we screen with transcranial Doppler ultrasound. Great. So Angie, we know in the ED, we're seeing fewer and fewer, if any, patients now coming in with rule out TIA, rule out stroke. So tell us a little bit about how the preventive or the early identification of these patients has transformed the management of these children and the lower numbers that we're seeing in the ED uh, for neurologic findings. Yeah, I think it's exactly what Kim said. Like we, we really rarely see patients who've had stroke. You know, you talked about what is some of the biggest innovations in sickle cell disease. And I think that that crop that the, uh, STOP trial that showed that transfusions were effective in those patients is exactly it. You know, I have a sister who has sickle cell disease. I'm just going to talk about this a little bit. And, you know, hearing Kim talk about room eight is the the room where you would see the patients who had bacteremia, overwhelming sepsis. You know, I remember, you know, growing up seeing the sickle cell patient who would be in the same room with my sibling who had a stroke. And that was always terrifying for, for patients because it was such a, I think patients with sickle cell disease prior to that study had what, like a 200 times increased risk of stroke yes. as compared to the, the, the normal population. And so, you know, the fact that we really don't see it much anymore, it's very important and impressive. I was going to ask him to also comment a little bit on the, the use of MRIs because to, to look for those silent strokes that are often missed, because I think that's important if you convey the, the risk of stroke for patients too. No, Angie, I think you're exactly right. And I think that when Bob talked about the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms behind some of the complications of sickle cell, we think that those strokes occur because of large vessel disease. But we also have to pay attention to that small vessel disease that can lead to what we used to call silent cerebral ischemia. And the reason that we called it silent was because it wasn't associated with motor um, deficits, but we know that it's associated with neurocognitive differences. And so we have been working with other groups to try to figure out the best age for screening. Because what you're alluding to, Angie, is just the fact that sometimes these silent cerebral strokes are associated with neurocognitive deficits and and problems with learning in school, whereas that individual may do better with a different learning program, with transfusions, with hydroxyurea. Unfortunately, there during a study, um, we had a death associated with sedation for a study MRI. This was not at our hospital, but it was on a trial where multiple pediatric institutions were participating. So right now, the new guidelines that were just published by the American Society of Hematology recommends an MRI when it can be done without sedation. So brain MRI, head MRA, as soon as possible when it can be done without sedation. Great. Thank you for sharing that information about transcranial Dopplers, MRIs, and the dramatic reduction in strokes. I want to talk about 
probably what is and continues to be the number one reason that patients with sickle cell disease present with acute complications to the ED, and that is with painful crises, whether they're vaso-occlusive crises or acute chest syndrome. And I want to refer to an article in The Lancet in 2011 titled Hydroxycarbamide or Hydroxyurea in Very Young Children with Sickle Cell Anemia. The mnemonic, I guess, it's the baby hug trial. Talk to us. We're, we're going to talk about opiates and narcotics in a little bit, but tell us how hydroxyurea therapy has changed the life of these patients with sickle cell disease, especially the young ones. Kim, you want to start off? So I was really fortunate to be at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, finishing up my fellowship just at the time where the multicenter study for hydroxyurea use in adults was published. And those um, results were profound. The fact that you could reduce pain, 45% decrease in pain episodes, decrease the need for transfusions, and lower in certain populations the risk for acute chest syndrome was just phenomenal. So that hydroxyurea study in children was really partly designed to make sure that there were no changes with growth when we used um, hydroxyurea, which traditionally as a chemotherapeutic agent, we had to worry about it impairing uh, rapid growth in children. And we did not see that effect. And in fact, it was very safe. And one of the ways that I met a very young Dr. Ellison was Angie was concerned about how we were using this drug and what it was going to mean for um, her family members. And so we actually met each other um, long before she came to CHOP because she was um, interested in learning more about hydroxyurea. So it's just funny how the, the lives of each other turn around this way because I think it's one of the biggest changes that has improved the quality of life of individuals with sickle cell disease is to have a drug that actually reduces acute pain. I still think we're challenged. I think that there are other things that um, we should be looking at other than chemotherapeutic agents necessarily to make a meaningful difference. And I'm pleased to say that there are other therapies that are sickle cell specific out there to use as well. Yeah. And can I make one comment about hydroxyurea that I I think is important in that, um, as Kim said, it it was shown to be safe and, and effective in our patients, but One of the challenges is actually getting people to prescribe it. I think when you look at the studies of hydroxyurea uptake, it's not adherence that, you know, most of the patients do are compliant with hydroxyurea therapy, but it's the ability to get people or the physicians to actually prescribe it. And and some of that also has to do with the sort of low numbers of uh, pediatric hematologists that can take care of patients with sickle cell disease. So it's a a way in which we have to make sure that as we advance the care of these patients, that there are actually people who can take care of them and also who are able uh, to prescribe the the medications that they need. Great. Thank you, Angie. Let's sort of stick on the category of vaso-occlusive episodes. Kim, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the treatment we did decades ago uh, back at Washington, D.C. are still used today. Talk to us about opiates. Okay. And what has changed, if anything, regarding the use of them back in the 80s and 90s for vaso-occlusive episodes and today in current children's hospitals, ERs? 
Well, first of all, I have to say that one of the things that I respect is that this is these are the only agents that we really have for treating pain. And so my job is to make sure that it's easily accessible for individuals living with sickle cell disease. And as you know, because sickle cell affects communities of color primarily, with the attention paid to the opioid epidemic, the stigma associated with needing opioids for pain management is increasing. I'm really lucky to be in a hospital where my emergency medicine colleagues are challenging me to make sure that the medications can be delivered as quickly as possible to this patient population. So we are still using opioids. I think we are learning the benefit of adjuvant agents. I hope that Dr. Ellison will talk to us about intranasal fentanyl and its role in the um, management of prompt attention to pain in individuals with sickle cell disease. But I also know that we had a drug called rivapansil, which is an anti-P, anti-E-selectin that is what we were testing to see if it could reduce pain. And also PCARN had a study with IV magnesium to see if it could have an impact on pain. So we are continuing a search for other therapies that will be sickle cell specific so that they can shorten the actual pain episode. Um, But now we are going to rely on opioids um, to be provided for supportive care. Great. Angie, talk to us about some of the initiatives that you have spearheaded uh, in the ED at CHOP regarding management of these vaso-occlusive episodes. Yeah. So working with the the ED sickle cell QI team, as well as uh, with Kim, you know, one of the first things that we did was to establish a clinical pathway for the, the management of sickle cell pain. I think when we think about what makes it difficult for patients to have access to care, uh, access to the, the, the opioids that they, they need is really having providers have sort of a, a recipe that they can work with and think through and administer pain quickly. So, you know, one of our, our goals is always to get pain medication opioids into patients as quickly as they can. Kim referred to the use of intranasal fentanyl, um, which is an opioid. And one of the reasons that that is, can be very effective is that you don't need IVs. You can just give it to them in their nose. It's called intranasal because kids with sickle cell disease often may be difficult to obtain an IV in. So um, having the option of to give the medications intranasally is, is important. And I think the other thing is, is really just, you know, the development of ultrasound that has helped for IV placement in these patients is, and other chronically ill kids is, is extremely important. And like we said, our mainstay is, is morphine and um, hydromorphone or, or Dilaudid. But it's really just getting the pain at the treatment into the patients as quickly as we can and making sure that we're able to reassess them and redose them appropriately. Great, Angie. And Kim, I've heard you speak recently. So outside the acute management, I think you had a dramatic statistic about the opioid-free days that many of your patients in sickle cell disease enjoy. Talk to us a little bit about that and how you accomplish that. You know, unfortunately, Bob, when we were in residency, there was not a lot of data on opioids and addiction. But one of the things that was clear through some of the earlier studies is that the more that you withheld pain medication, the more likely you were to lead to addiction. And so I think that that prompt attention to pain and trying to treat it quickly is very, very important. 
But I think that the other aspect of care, you know, that we need to address with opioids is that they have a role in the management of individuals with sickle cell disease, but it should be as limited as possible. We think that there is a time of neuroplasticity in individuals with sickle cell disease, whereas pain recurrences kind of um, then trigger other neurologic mechanisms that ultimately lead to chronic pain. We have been so adept at getting pain addressed quickly in the ED that I think that the number of children that have a lot of the emotional context associated with pain that is untreated is lower. I think that we have a lower likelihood of those individuals developing chronic pain. So to say in an institution that cares for 950 individuals living with sickle cell disease up to age 22, that less than 15 have more than 50% of their days exposed to an opioid is remarkable. And I think it's because of the collaboration between hematology, the sickle cell team, and the ED that we have made this uh, so exciting and prominent um, as an example of what happens in an institution that focuses on treating pain promptly and not prolonging stays uh, for opioid use with the role of getting them home and getting them back to their usual routines as quickly as possible. That is a remarkable accomplishment, not only in Philadelphia, but I'm sure you've shared that uh, throughout the country. So thank you to both of you. I would be remiss if we didn't talk COVID a little bit. So COVID, does it cause increased acute chest in the sickle cell population, or are patients with sickle cell more susceptible to COVID infections, Angie? Well, you know, I think it's it's really not known. We think because you, you have a chronic disease like sickle cell disease and the risk of acute chest in these patients that you would be not just more susceptible to COVID, but more susceptible to adverse outcomes of COVID is, is what the focus is. And so, so yes, yeah, so these kids are a priority um, on the list of people to be vaccinated um, for, for COVID. But yeah, it's, it's really their, their underlying risk for acute chest syndrome um, that, that makes them a priority. Angie, I think you're spot on with that. And I think that one of the things that we have seen in the Sickle Cell Secure Registry is an international registry for all ages um, with sickle cell disease and COVID infection. And as Angie mentioned, you know, the risk for acute chest is a complication of a COVID infection is high. And we see that. But what we also see is that it's very similar to the general population where we've been very fortunate with our very young children and how they have managed COVID infections. And you all have helped me send some of those little children home from the ED with a a newly positive SARS-CoV-2 test, but with follow-up from my team. And we've been able to keep them at home with incentive spirometers or blowing bubbles and not had many respiratory complications. But in young adults, um, not so much the case. And unfortunately, when you see the mortality statistics associated with COVID infections, definitely COVID uh, causes mortality at a lower age in the sickle cell population and in the general population. So we do have a lot of work to do to make sure that these individuals living with sickle cell disease get vaccinated and that their household members, if they're young children in the house below 16, can have access to the vaccine as well. Great. As we finish up, I just want to share with you in a little bit of my research, we focus pretty much on sickle cell disease, 
but we know it's a genetic disease and there's something called sickle cell trait. Now, those patients generally don't appear in the ER for acute complications that we discuss, but they're at risk for one thing that I read, exercise-related sudden death. Angie, talk to us about sickle cell trait and exercise-related sudden death in this population. Well, I wouldn't just say that's the only thing they're at risk for, because I think papillary necrosis <laughs> is, is, is also an important risk. So I, I actually have sickle cell trait. And, you know, if you read the, the case reports on papillary necrosis, so this patients present with hematuria at, at, at any age, but usually you can go your whole life until you're an adult, and, and then you can have an, an episode of papillary necrosis with severe hematuria. And this is something to be aware of because um, you can get actually really sick, critically sick from this and require blood transfusions. Um, and I haven't read any case reports. There aren't any large studies because it, it just that the incidence is slow, but there really is a, a lot of adverse effects from that. So I put that out there just so that people can be aware of that. If you get a patient who comes in with hematuria, you can't find any other or you can't think of a, another uh, reason um, that you should definitely consider sickle trait as a, as a possible complication. Angie, I think you bring up some really important things. And, you know, when there was a lot of political interest in sickle cell in the 70s, and it was mainly around trying to distinguish between sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease, because in certain professions, individuals with sickle cell trait were said, you know, you can't work here. You're at too high risk. And so there was a lot of interest in really trying to define and draw a line between disease and trait. But now we really are aware that trait is associated with um, some complications, including hematuria and that papillary necrosis. We know that when individuals exercise at high altitudes, that splenic infarctions can occur in that situation. And there's also a concern with exertional rhabdo when individuals who are poorly physically conditioned then go through intense training, often without access to water or with frequent rest. And so, Bob, you're exactly right. ECAST or this exertional collapse actually is another aspect of the pathway between or the, the spectrum between maybe what we're seeing as exertional rhabdo, exertional collapse, and sudden death and sickle cell trait. NC2A started screening all um, division one and then now division two and three athletes for sickle cell trait. And we, as the American Society of Hematology, we tried to really reinforce that individuals shouldn't be treated differently with trait when we know if you exercise wisely with frequent rest and drinking lots of water, that there's no need for individuals with sickle cell trait to be identified by a red band around their wrist or to sign off on a waiver saying that they, you know, essentially are taking this risk of exercising with sickle cell trait. So I'm very pleased that you raised this issue. I think it's something that we need to understand more about. I think that it really emphasizes the importance of good hydration in individuals with sickle cell trait, because one of the things that's often not talked about is another complication is something called hypothenuria, where they salt waste and water waste. So it's very easy for individuals with sickle cell trait to get dehydrated. And that's really not em emphasized enough in the literature. You know, the families are told your child has sickle cell trait, they'll be fine. 
but really there are associations and complications that we should be educating families about. So another reason for a newborn screening. Sticking with sickle cell trait, I just have one last question and put your global hats back on. We started with global medicine with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell trait protects against malaria. Talk about that, how that affects the majority of patients with sickle cell disease who live in the countries that you mentioned at the opening of this podcast. So I'll start with this one, Angie, and I would just say that it is a very interesting relationship between sickle cell trait and malaria. Sickle cell trait does not protect you from getting malaria. It protects you from the severe complications associated with malaria. So oftentimes my family members of my young ones living with sickle cell disease, I have to caution them, don't think you can go into a malaria endemic area and not take malaria prophylaxis because it doesn't protect you from the infection it protects you from severe outcomes, which is a survival advantage, which is why the gene frequency is higher in malaria endemic areas. However, we know that one of the most prominent causes of anemia in children with sickle cell disease in sub-Saharan Africa is malaria. So even though sickle cell trait offers you that increased protection, it is not as protective in individuals with sickle cell disease. Um, And so it still remains quite a problem for those with sickle cell in uh, malaria endemic areas. Angie, thanks to add. No, that's it. I I think Kim brings up a good point uh, in that even I found that out. You can't travel without taking your your anti-malarial meds because you're not protected with treat. And I think that that's a myth that's that's out there, right? Um, That you're protected, you're fine, but it's it's not true. Well, now all our listeners, uh, that myth has been debunked. Thank to both of you. And, and again, on behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank both of you for your expert advice, interpretation of the literature, and recommendations. And I want to close by giving you both the opportunity for some final thoughts. So Angie, final thoughts about sickle cell disease. Again, we have thousands of people listening, many of them working in ERs as physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs. What advice would you have for them, Angie? You know, the one thing that I would say is that we should all continue to remain optimistic about therapeutic interventions for sickle cell disease and to continue to encourage our patients who have sickle cell disease to live their lives. You know, they can live long, happy lives as long as they continue to take care of themselves. And so my, my biggest thing is to, to just maintain hope for these patients. Kim, you get the last word. I say increase awareness about sickle cell disease. Sickle cell is the intersection of social injustice, health inequity, so many issues that we need to address by compassionate, culturally sensitive care. So continue to be an advocate, to continue to raise awareness, make sure that the stigmas associated with sickle cell disease are, and the myths associated with sickle cell are debunked. That was what I would say to this audience. Be an advocate. Great. Thank you so much. And if both of you serve as role models to not only myself, but many of our listening audience. So thank you for what you do each day. And uh, we look forward maybe to having you back on a future podcast to discuss new management strategy in sickle cell disease or some other topic. So thank you both. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Great being here.